Well, this is the second of two Sundays in March, in which we have devoted to placing a special emphasis upon global missions here at the church. We try to keep that as an emphasis throughout the year, um, but of course, uh, it's good to spend time especially focusing upon it. Last week, Ben um, opened up Isaiah 11 to show us the purpose of God to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord, with the glory of the Lord through global missions. And he pointed out how this was God's intent actually from the beginning of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God created mankind, of course, in his image, which means to reflect his character, his glory. And then he commanded man to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth so that the result would be that the earth would be filled with the glory of God in mankind. But this original purpose, of course, was not immediately fulfilled because in the fall, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam sinned, mankind um, became guilty and corrupt, And the image of God in man, while not entirely lost, was badly distorted. So you get to Genesis 6, and you see that as man multiplied and filled the earth, he filled it not with the glory of God, but with violence and wickedness instead, of course, leading to the flood. And Ben pointed out, however, that when you come to Isaiah chapter 11, you see the Lord predicting a time when God would raise up the Messiah to bring a remnant of people from every nation on the earth into a renewed creation through a second exodus where they would be freed from the curse and would prosper under his righteous rule. And at that time, the Lord said through the prophet in verse 9 of Isaiah 11, Quote, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, you might say that God's original purpose for creation would finally be fulfilled. And Ben demonstrated that this glorious prediction of Isaiah chapter 11 is being fulfilled through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the long-promised king. His church is the remnant of the nations, redeemed out of slavery to sin and death through a greater redemptive event than the Exodus, a second Exodus accomplished through his death and his resurrection. And even now, Christ is gathering this remnant of redeemed humanity from every nation into the church through the preaching of the gospel. And of course, that's where global missions comes in. And when this task is finished, he will bring this redeemed humanity into a redeemed creation, freed from the curse, from sin, and all of its effects, where Christ, the Messiah, will rule over his people in perfect righteousness forever. That's that vision of Isaiah chapter 11. Now Ben's main point in that first sermon was to show how this task of global missions 
is part then of this larger purpose of God reflected in Isaiah 11 to fill the earth with his knowledge, to fill the earth with his glory in the latter days. And because it is God's purpose to do this, Isaiah 11 tells us, well, we can know then that the task of global missions is going to be successful because it's part of that purpose. Now, this morning, I want to pick up where Ben left off. Ben spent most of his time developing these things out of the Old Testament, and I want to take us into the New Testament. So more specifically, I want to show you how the purpose of God to fill the earth with his glory unfolds in the pages of the New Testament scriptures and how global missions, as we call it, is the means by which God is bringing that about. And I I want to demonstrate this by laying out three points from the New Testament. There's much that could be said here, but let me just focus our attention on three main points. First, that God is gathering a redeemed humanity from every nation to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel and the planting of local churches. And then second, I want to show you that God is transforming this redeemed humanity into the image of Jesus Christ. And then finally, third, I want to show you how God will bring this redeemed humanity into a new creation where it will be filled with his glory in a final way. So let's begin with the first point. God is gathering a redeemed humanity from every nation to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel and the planting of local churches, of course, which includes global missions. Now, if you're at all familiar with the New Testament, then you're vaguely aware of this story. Jesus, the promised Messiah, redeemed a people for God through his death and resurrection. He earned their righteousness through his perfect human life as their representative. He paid for their sins through his substitutionary and atoning death on the cross. And then he secured their vindication and eternal life through his resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven to God's right hand. And now he sits there at God's right hand in heaven as their eternal Savior and King. And he's waiting for the day when he will return in glory to raise his people from the dead and take them to be with himself forever. So if you're at all familiar with the New Testament, you know something of that grand story. But let me just take you a little deeper into it. This people whom Jesus has redeemed for God through his life, death, and resurrection consisted, first of all, do you remember how Paul said in Romans 1, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this redeemed people consists, first of all, of a remnant of believing Jews. All the first Christians were Jews. But it also included a remnant of believing Gentiles as well. And Paul goes into great depth into, uh, about this, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 21. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, which refers to the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
for he himself is our peace, who has made us both, that is, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, the old covenant, that he might create in himself one new man, or humanity, in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to you who are near, the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer, you Gentiles, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. But while Christ has redeemed a people for his Father from every nation, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, that redemption now needs to be applied to them in time and space. And this will only happen when they are brought to repentance and faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And how will that come about? Well, the Apostle Paul actually answered that question very specifically in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. He said, And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In other words, Christ must send people out into all the world, and we might add, to the end of history, to preach the good news, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to call people to repent and believe in him for salvation. This is how Christ will gather to himself the people whom he has purchased with his blood, from every nation, in every generation. Now this, of course, is what we begin to see happen in that history of the first uh, Christians that we have in the book of Acts. So the risen Jesus gave this commission to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, just before ascending before their eyes into heaven. He said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses So in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then you see that happen. So in Acts chapter 2, they received power when God poured out the Holy Spirit upon them at the day of Pentecost. And then in the rest of Acts chapter 2, through seven, they proclaim the gospel in the city of Jerusalem, and many Jews are brought to faith in Christ. And then in Acts chapter eight, verses one through three, Paul or Saul, before his conversion, begins persecuting the church, and they are scattered, and they begin to preach the gospel throughout the region of Judea. And then in the rest of chapter eight, Philip, the evangelist, takes the gospel into Samaria. And many Samaritans are added to the number of believers. And then in chapters 9 and 10, Peter 
proclaims the gospel for the first time to the Gentiles. And then the rest of the book talks about how Paul takes the gospel to the Gentile peoples in the ends of the earth over the course of three missionary journeys until finally he ends up in Rome. It's important to note that according to the book of Acts, wherever the gospel was preached, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, those who did respond to it in repentance and faith, believing in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, were then formed into local churches. In fact, what you have when you open up your New Testament and you read it is many letters written by apostles to these local churches throughout the known world at the time. So you have letters to the churches in Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica and on and on. These local churches baptized new believers, administered the Lord's Supper when they gathered for worship every Lord's Day. And it was in the context of these local churches that new believers, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, learned to observe everything that Jesus commanded. They, in a sense, provided the environment in which believers were able then to follow Jesus together. There's also something else we should notice. If you go way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.28, the Lord had commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You remember that? This command was repeated to Noah after the flood. It was a way of talking about how humanity was to expand out and fill the creation. It's interesting to notice that the book of Acts uses similar terminology to describe the expansion of the church through the preaching of the gospel and the planting of local churches. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The disciples were increasing in number. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 9, 31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Acts chapter 12, verse 24 says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Again, Acts 16, verse 5 says, The churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Very interesting that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the two words used throughout the book of Acts to describe the expansion of the church, increasing and multiply, those are the two words from Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, Luke was describing the churches of Jesus Christ like a redeemed humanity, born of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel multiplying now and filling the world, just as God had told mankind to do in the beginning. And of course, this process continues today, doesn't it? You know, one church planting organization has cleverly called themselves Acts 29. How many chapters are there in the book of Acts? 28, right? And it's to emphasize that point, that the story of Acts continues in the church today. And there's a very real sense in which that is true. The ongoing effort on the part of Christian churches to multiply themselves 
by proclaiming the gospel and planting other local churches is simply the continuation of the story that began in the book of Acts. And by the way, that's a story that won't end until the return of Christ at the end of the age. Now, global missions, of course, is then part of that story. It is, as we say in our missions policy here, that work of making disciples through the preaching of the gospel and the establishing of local churches that involves typically the crossing of geographic or cultural or linguistic or ethnic barriers and is performed by those who are specifically sent out by the church for that task. People like Amber Smith. So first, we've seen from the New Testament that God is gathering a redeemed humanity from every nation of the world to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel and the planting of local churches. Now let's consider a second point, namely that God is now transforming that redeemed humanity into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, the prophets had foretold that in the latter days, when the Messiah came and when God redeemed the people for himself through the Messiah, he would not only forgive their sins, but he would also renovate, as it were, their hearts. In other words, he would both justify and sanctify this redeemed people. So the Lord famously said of his new covenant people in Jeremiah 31 that he would forgive their sins and remember their iniquities no more and he would write his law upon their hearts, which is a provocative way of speaking of a regeneration of their hearts so that they would actually want to keep his law. That, after all, was the problem throughout Israel's history, wasn't it? The Lord reiterated this through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34, 25 through 27, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. There's the forgiveness of their sins. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There is the inner renovation of their hearts. You know, the New Testament tells us this is exactly what God has done in the church of Jesus Christ, his new covenant people, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, just taking one familiar passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul famously said of us as Christians that God has saved us by his grace through faith apart from works. And that he has created us in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them, right? In other words, the church of Jesus Christ, as God's new covenant people, is made up of those whom God has both justified and sanctified through Christ's atoning work and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, I want to drill down a little bit more on that matter of God's work to sanctify his people. He has redeemed a people through Jesus Christ. He has cleansed them from their sin, but he is now 
transforming them on the inside. And what exactly does this involve? Well, there are a lot of things that could be said here, right? A lot of different ways the New Testament describes it. But I want to focus on one important aspect of what this inner renovation of his people looks like. I pointed out how in Ephesians 2.10, Paul said that we as Christians have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. But you know, later on in that letter, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talked more about what that meant. And in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 4, he said to us as Christians that we must no longer live like unbelievers do, practicing every kind of impurity out of dark and hardened hearts. And then he explained why. He said in verses 20 through 24, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 2.10, he said that God created us in Christ Jesus for good works. But here he expands upon it. He says that God created us after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here again, we see this work to God, this reference to God's work to renovate our hearts. And Paul describes it again as a work of new creation. But then notice, He defined the goal of that new creation work in verse 24 as creating us after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When you hear likeness of God, well, that brings you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where it says that God made man in his own image and likeness in the beginning. But that image, of course, was corrupted and distorted in mankind because of Adam's sin. But now God has purchased a new humanity with the blood of his son. And he is restoring them into the image and likeness of himself by a work of new creation wrought in us by the Spirit of God. Notice also that since Christ, Paul says, is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Well, another way of describing this dynamic that we've been talking about is to say that God is transforming us as his redeemed people into the image of Jesus Christ, who is himself the very image of God. In fact, Paul said this very thing in Romans 8.29. You remember he said, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the church of Jesus Christ, the new covenant people of God, is like a new humanity expanding out into the world in whom then the image of God is being restored by the power of the Spirit, as he transforms them into the likeness of Jesus Christ. But there's one more aspect of this we need to see. Remember that the image of God in man is ultimately about the glory of God. 
To be in God's image is to reflect him in us, to reflect his character. And to reflect God's character is to glorify him. So as mankind multiplied and filled the earth, they were supposed to fill the earth with the image of God, reflecting his character, glorifying him. But of course they didn't because of the fall, right? Now, however, God is fulfilling that original purpose for mankind in the church of Jesus Christ. Think how Paul described our transformation into the image of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Here's another text in which it speaks of these things. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Here, the Lord is the risen Christ are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. In other words, Paul described here the process of our being transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ as a process of reflecting his own glory in our lives more and more. This is why, by the way, Paul described the ultimate goal of our redemption in the golden chain of Romans 8.30 as being glorified, right? Now, do you see what this means? God is gathering a redeemed humanity from every nation of the earth to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel and the planting of local churches And then he is transforming this redeemed humanity into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit who renews us from within so that as these redeemed people of God increase and multiply upon the earth and local churches spring up all over the earth, it will be filling the earth with the glory of God. In the church... God's original purpose for mankind is being fulfilled. And in this way, the ultimate purpose then of global missions in the earth is that the earth might be filled with the glory of God. Why? Because as Mark Devers memorably put it, the church is the display of God's glory upon the earth. So second, we have seen from the New Testament that God is transforming his redeemed humanity into the image of Jesus Christ. And now finally, let's consider a third point. And this third point might be summarized this way. God will fill the earth with his glory in a full and final way at the end of history. God will fill the earth with his glory in a full and final way at the end of history. You know, we've been talking about what God is doing now as it unfolds in the New Testament. But where is it all headed? In other words, what is God's end game for you Marvel fans? You know, there are lots of passages in the New Testament which speak to this matter. But perhaps none is grander than the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. In these chapters, what you see is the grand finale of human history described for us by way of symbolic visions. And what do these visions show us? 
Well, there are two main things that you see in the visions. First, you see a new creation. So it says in chapter 21, verse 1, catch the vision language, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, this symbolized the promise, yes, of a renewed creation. A creation that, as the visions go on, you see is freed from sin and all of its effects. Later in the chapters, it says, there will no longer be any curse, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. Echoing Isaiah's great visions in Isaiah 65 and 66. And then second, we see in these visions a new Jerusalem. So it says in chapter 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This city, I believe, symbolizes the church. Why? Because like the church in Ephesians 5 is called the bride of Christ, well, so the city is called the bride of the Lamb. And you see that the foundations of the city are 12, and they are the names of, of the twelve apostles, right? The foundation of the church. But in this vision, the church, the new Jerusalem, like the rest of creation, is entirely freed from sin and its effects. She is glorious. She's described in chapter 21, verse 3, as a bride adorned for her husband, perfectly pure and radiant, Later, she's described in terms of the glory of precious jewels. While all those who do evil are repeatedly described in the visions as outside the city, unable to enter it. So these visions in Revelation 21 and 22, they tell us that in the end, God's perfected people will live in a perfected creation permanently delivered from all corruption. But that's not all. Because when you press into the visions a little further, something else emerges about this grand finale of human history and what it will be like. Because we're told, for instance, in chapter 21, verse 22, that unlike the original city of Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem has no temple in it. Instead, what we see in chapter 21, verse 16, is that the city itself is in the shape of a cube. The vision says its length and width and height are equal. Now what's very striking to that, who are, who are familiar with the Old Testament, is that there's really only one other cube ever described in the Bible, namely the Holy of Holies in the original temple was described, being built with its length and width and height equal. And the point in the vision seems to be to portray this reality that instead of the New Jerusalem having a temple where God dwelt, the city is a temple. In other words, there's not going to be any walls and curtains cordoning off God's people from the glory of his presence in this future day. Rather, what we see is that God will dwell in the midst of his people in a full and final way, such that they would enjoy unhindered fellowship with him. Which, by the way, as Amber pointed out, 
from John 17, 3, is eternal life. It will be like a bride and groom on their wedding day. A consummation of the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and his bride. Indeed, the vision went on to say in chapter 21, verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamp, the lamp, its lamp is the lamb. Do you see, where did the glory of God reside in Jerusalem? In the Holy of Holies within the temple? But now, what we see is that the glory of God will fill the city. And of his redeemed people, it says, in chapter 22, verses 4 through 5, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. He owns them. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see, brothers and sisters, this is where it's all headed. This is the great end game of God for human history. This is the ultimate goal of global missions. A people from every tongue, tribe, and nation of the earth, redeemed and purchased by the blood of Christ the Lamb, perfectly transformed into the image of Christ through resurrection, glory, living in unhindered fellowship with God in a renewed creation, freed from sin and all of its effects forever and ever and ever. Then, you see, will the words of Isaiah 11, verse 9, reach their pinnacle. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So third and finally, we've seen from the New Testament that God will fill the earth with his glory in a full and final way at the end of history. Now let me just close by briefly tracing out three implications of these truths for the task of global missions. First, going back to the first point that I made, what we see is that these truths that we've considered from the New Testament, they provide a helpful reminder of what the task of global missions involves. You know, lots of things go under the heading of missions, especially these days. Everything from caring for orphans to providing medical care to delivering to digging wells for people so that they can have clean water. And, and make no mistake, those are all tasks that are good. They're acts of love. They ought to be done by Christians, and they ought to be done on the mission field. Indeed, oftentimes these things do go hand in hand with the work of global missions. But what I want to be clear on is that they are in one important sense distinct from the specific task of global missions. The task of global missions involves the risen Christ sending out his disciples into the nations of the world to gather his elect into the church through the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, global missions involves Christians, you and me, leaving our homes crossing geographic, cultural, linguistic, ethnic barriers to reach people who have not yet heard the gospel. And when we get there, we must do everything that is necessary 
to tell them about the one true God of the Bible who made us all in his image. To tell them that they, like we, have all sinned against this creator God by breaking his commands and we have come under his righteous judgment as a result and to tell them that God has loved us despite our sin and sent his eternal divine son Jesus Christ into the world to save us by dying for our sins upon the cross and rising again for our justification and then telling them that if they will repent and believe in him they can be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to this God and have eternal life with Him forever. And then if they do repent and if they do believe, then that they must be baptized and they must be formed into local churches where they can begin learning to follow Christ together as a new church in a new land. This is what the task of global missions involves. And it's important to clarify this because as valuable as all kinds of other good works may be, they cannot save human souls. They're not the means that God has chosen to gather his elect to himself. Rather, remember what Paul said, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So then missions involves, above everything else, proclaiming the word of Christ to the nations. Now, of course, this word is also for anyone here who's in this room and is still in your sins. The call to you is repent, believe in Jesus today, and you will be saved from the penalty that your sins deserve before this holy God as a gift of grace. And then be baptized and join a local church and learn to follow Jesus there as your Lord. So first, what we learned this morning from the New Testament helps us understand the task that mission involves. But second, it gives us a greater confidence that this task of global missions is going to be successful. You know, as you've probably heard many times, the people groups in the world who remain unreached are unreached for a reason, right? With all of our technology and abilities, there are groups out there who have not yet heard the gospel, and it's for a reason. Number one... Because of the type of roads that you saw in that, vision, in that uh, video. Because they're very difficult to get to, in other words. Or number two, because if you do get there and you do try to proclaim the gospel to them, you know that you're probably going to be killed. All other things being equal. So, as we think about that, well then you start recognizing that for missionaries to even attempt to reach those people with the gospel, it's going to require years of training, a lot of resources, and all kinds of seemingly insurmountable obstacles being overcome. And so the task of global missions to the remaining unreached people groups of the world is so daunting to the eyes, right? that it can easily lead people to despair. It can easily lead people like you and me sitting in churches today to say, hey, that's not for me. But you know, all of that kind of evaluation is based solely on what you see with your eyes. And you have to remember that what is impossible with man is possible with God. His arm isn't short. Indeed, we have a whole Bible, right? Full of true stories of our God acting in history to accomplish his purposes through weak human beings in the face of circumstances that seemed impossible. Think of how Abraham 
defeated the five kings with a few few hundred men and rescued his nephew Lot. How Gideon defeated the Midianite hordes with 300 soldiers. How the Israelites drove out many Canaanite nations from the land who were far greater than them. How the boy David defeated the great giant Goliath. How Jerusalem was delivered from the mighty Assyrian armies who surrounded the city in the days of Hezekiah. And you know I could go on and on, couldn't I? If it is God's will to do something, Nothing can stop him from doing it. And the scriptures tell us it is God's will to gather a people for himself, Revelation 6, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages through the proclamation of the gospel by his disciples, you and me. So we can take up the task of global missions with a full certainty that Whatever the outcome of our individual efforts, as Amber says, she doesn't know what God has in store in terms of the results of their efforts. But in the end, the task that we are engaging in will be successful. And then, so we see the second thing, that we can have great confidence that the task of global missions will be successful. It's the purpose of God as we've seen. And then third, and finally, we're also reminded of the ultimate goal of global missions. You know, it's easy to become man-centered in our thinking about global missions. We can think of it almost exclusively in terms of lost people who are headed to hell and need to hear the gospel so they can be saved. And that's true, right? Indeed, that's one motivation that ought to drive us to the mission field. But it can't become our exclusive or even our ultimate motivation. Because the ultimate goal of global missions is actually not simply the salvation of human beings. Rather, what we've seen from the New Testament this morning is that the ultimate goal of missions is the glory of God. Because the very purpose of humanity in the earth as image bearers of God is to glorify their maker by reflecting his character upon the earth, filling it with his image. And the end game of God is to renew, fill a renewed earth with his glory by filling it with a redeemed people whom he has restored into his image and then dwelling in their midst forever. So whatever other motivations we have for participating in global missions, for instance, the good motivation of seeing sinners saved, yet the glory of God through the redemption of man must be our highest motive. Why? Because nothing less will do in the end. That old answer to the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism has so helpfully put it, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So third, we've seen that the ultimate goal of global missions is to glorify God. Well, in conclusion, the main point of these two sermons Uh, of missions emphasis has been, and, and indeed just the whole Sundays of missions emphasis, has been to show from Scripture that God's purpose in redemptive history is to fill the earth with his glory. And that the means that he's chosen to do that is global missions. You know, Ben showed that from the Old Testament last Sunday. I've tried to show it from the New Testament today. But I just pray that the Lord will use this grand truth of Scripture with all of its implications, to equip us better to participate more effectively in that great unfinished task 
of preaching the gospel and planting local churches of Jesus Christ among all the nations of the world until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures and how the scriptures are your word to us and how you've spoken to us of your purpose for our lives and of your purposes of redemption in human history. We thank you that you do tell us the end of the story. We thank you that as we read your word, we can have great confidence that we are caught up in something that is far bigger than us, something that you will do in rescuing a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation of the world, forming them into the bride of Christ, renewing them into your own image, and then bringing them into the heavenly country on the final day that you will fill with your glory. Encourage us with these words. Challenge us with these things. Equip us to serve you better with these things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.